0: in a state of economic depression, in a state of depletion of the resources of our planet
1: because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The
2: world for people who think...
3: Welcome back to Behind the Headlines, everyone. It is September 3rd. I am Harrison Cayley, and joining me as usual is Ilan Martin.
1: Hello, everyone. Joe Quinn. Hi there.
3: And Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. Today, we are pleased to be speaking with activist and journalist Robert Fantina. Robert is a U.S. citizen and moved to Canada shortly after the 2004 presidential election and now holds dual citizenship. He's currently active in supporting the Palestinian people and is the Canadian coordinator of the NGO World Beyond War. That's WorldBeyondWar.org. Uh, Robert is also the author of several books, including Desertion and the American Soldier, 1776 to 2006, and the novel Look Not Unto the Morrow, a Vietnam-era anti-war story. He's also the author of Empire, Racism, and Genocide: A History of U.S. Foreign Policy, published by Red Pill Press. And a new book just published by Red Pill Press um, last month in August, uh, Essays on Palestine. Um, Essays on Palestine is a c- compilation of Bob's writing on the so-called land without a people, um, culled from his works published with various uh, outlets such as Mondewise, Mint Press News, Counterpunch, and various others. Um, Bob has a website at robertfantina.com, f-a-n-t-i-n-a.com. Um, so Robert, welcome to the show we're glad to be speaking with you today.
4: Thank you very much I'm very pleased to be here
3: So it looks like we've got a little bit of a connection problem but we're just gonna have to bear with it so I think we can all understand what's going what's what's being said so um, everyone just kind of bear with us <laughs> uh, we'll we'll deal with it so um, to start out with Bob, maybe you can tell us a bit about your new book Essays on Palestine. Yes,
4: thank you. Essays on Palestine, as you mentioned, is a compilation of my articles for the last few years about Palestine. It covers such topics as the suffering of the people in Palestine, a lot of information about the occupation, the Ill- illegality of the occupation and the brutality of it, and also the U.S. support of the occupation. It is only allowed to continue because of U.S. support financially and Within the United Nations, and I detail that in the articles in this book.
3: Great! It looks like the connection cleared up, so that's good to hear too. Good, I'm um, glad to hear it. Maybe um,
2: before before we get into uh, the details, I just wanted to ask a question. In in Harrison's introduction of you, uh, Robert, he said that in 2004. Uh, and I think he said after, just after the presidential election in the U.S., that you moved to Canada. Was that because you just couldn't handle another four years of George W. Bush?
4: Yes, that was exactly the reason. I worked okay. <laughs> for. I, I was. I was a volunteer on the Kerry campaign. Not that I think Kerry is the savior of the world, but mm. I certainly thought he would be better than Bush. And when he, when Kerry lost the following day, my wife and I said, we have to go. We, we can't be here anymore. If the mm. American voter is going to put Bush in for another four years, then, then we were through. So it took a few months, but I was able to make the arrangements and we did move to Canada.
2: Great. Excellent. And are you glad you made that move? Yes,
4: very glad. Especially now, I've said more than once that if I hadn't moved then, I'd have to be moving now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Right. All right. Yeah. Well, let's get, let's uh, get into the...
3: Or, Joe, did you want to say anything else? Or no, anything? go ahead. Okay, let's get into the book. let's get into the book a bit. We're going to be talking about some current events, but um, I want to just ask a couple of questions on the book. Um, there are numerous sections. Uh, well, the articles are divided kind of by topic. So, um, first, can you can you tell us um, kind of how you divided the articles and what the kind of some of the main thrusts of of the sections are?
4: Yes. I'd be happy to do that. I wanted people to understand what the occupation means. We hear on the news that Palestine is occupied or occupation forces, that sort of thing. What exactly does that mean for the people in Palestine? How much are they suffering? Occupation just sounds benign. But when you look at actually what's happening and how it's impacting the people there, it's, it's an awful, horrible situation. So I have one section on understanding the occupation. Then I wanted to also, as I mentioned in my introduction, talk about how the U.S. enables it. So there's a section on U.S. bias towards Israel. How, how not only how the U.S. continually supports Israel, which is mainly through uh, financing. The U.S. gives Israel four billion dollars a year, and that is ever increasing. And also, almost every time any United Nations resolution is Presented that is critical of Israel, the U.S. vetoes it. It didn't. There was one that passed last uh, last ja- last January, or just before Trump was inaugurated. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Congress was horrified that that would happen, and the reason that is is because pro-Israeli lobbies spend millions of dollars getting supportive campaign supportive candidates elected. So I talk about that quite a bit in, in one section.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, I also go into, as I mentioned, for the general conditions in Palestine. There's a section on the, uh, just, it's just titled 2014. In the summer of 2014, Israel carpet bombed the Gaza Strip. This killed uh, over a thousand uh, Palestinians, including over 500 children some as young as as infancy. And people need to understand that this is not a conflict between two basically equal countries. Israel has a very powerful military as a result of the money that it gets and the equipment that it gets from the United States. Palestine has no army, navy or air force, has no military to speak of. We hear sometimes in the news about rocket fire from Gaza into Israel. Norman Finkelstein, who is the son of Holocaust survivors and is a ardent proponent for Palestinian rights, has referred to those rockets as enhanced fireworks. That's about the power that they have. They do very little damage. They seldom hit their targets. But Israel justifies those, justifies its carpet bombing of Gaza based on those rockets. It's also interesting to note, and I talk about this in the book, that In about 55 days in the summer of 2014, Israel dropped more bombs on Gaza than Gaza had fired rockets into Israel in the previous 14 years. Mm. There's there's another section in the book called Changing Attitudes. For so long, anybody who criticized Israel was called anti-Semitic. It was just Israel was was seen as sacred in, in U.S. political circles and, and there could be no criticism, whatever. That has changed and is continuing to change, mainly, I think, due to the boycott, boycott, divestment, and, and sanctions movement, with BDS. So I talk about that in another section. The final section concerns international law and Israeli violations of it. So that's basically
3: the book. Mm-hmm. Well, and just having read the book, I'd like to just say that it is uh, a great primer for just getting uh, a handle on, like you said, what the situation actually is and some of the things that actually go on that aren't publicized or uh, made very well known to the general public. So uh, I think it's a, a great service to just provide that um, kind of window into what's actually happening. I mean, even even though I follow the news, even though I've been following the conflict for you know over a, a decade of my relatively short life... Um, there were still things in here that uh, that kind of outraged me and and things that I learned that I didn't know before so I, I'd recommend checking out the book and uh, and reading it and also because like we're gonna next we're gonna get into some current events and the thing about well the, the depressing thing about any book on Israel Palestine is that no matter what you're <laughs> it seems like no matter what period you're writing about it's still current because uh, the same things have been going on for decades and decades, and it seems like nothing much changes. One of the things that has changed, like you said, is 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 kind of uh, public opinion about what's going on. We see more criticism of Israel these days than we did, um, you know, even 10 years ago. So that's a good thing. But um, the, the, go ahead.
4: Well, a, a couple things you mentioned, one that you found some information in the book that you didn't know, which is good. Mm-hmm. I wanted to inform people. You also said that something's enraged you. I hope mm-hmm. I enrage a lot of people by this yeah. book. Yeah. And regarding the changing attitude, there are some changes that we're seeing, but that isn't translated to any change on the ground for the suffering Palestinians as of this point.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the depressing thing that, that, uh, Yes, for me, at least um, that, that, that,
0: that, that, that leads into a question. I have, um, in between the major onslaughts, say, uh, by the Israeli forces on, say, Gaza Strip, I mean, is there at least some lessening of the degree to which the terrible conditions are, are on the ground for them? Can they grow or, or at least, you know, find some kind of release from suffering in between each barrage?
4: It's, it's, it's minimal. The only only advantage is they're not running from bombs and they're not picking up bodies of loved ones that have been killed. But because of the blockade of the Gaza Strip, most reconstruction equipment cannot get in. So tens of thousands of people who were rendered homeless in 2014 remain homeless today. Unemployment is the highest in the world. Youth unemployment is the highest in the world. And this this leads to a sense of despair or it can lead to a sense of despair, which is what Israel wants. It wants the Palestinians to just roll over and die. So between these genocidal onslaughts, there is little relief. Uh, they they have electricity now in most parts of Gaza, perhaps three hours a day. Uh, not always, but sometimes. And that's not even enough to, charge, <clears throat> to char- recharge some of the battery-operated devices that they have there. They are not allowed to import a wide variety of products that we take for granted, not only electronics, but things as as many kinds of toys. At different times, pasta has been banned from, from the Gaza Strip. So the suffering that they undergo on a regular basis is unlike anything we experience. Normally, when there's a bombing in some country, once that ends, Somebody comes in with with foreign aid to rebuild, to bring medical supplies and so on. This doesn't happen with Gaza because Israel prevents it. In fact, just a few weeks ago, the European Union built a couple of schools for children and Israeli soldiers and uh, others promptly demolished them, saying they were built without permits. Now, the reason they were built without permits is because over 90% of the permanent applications that people in Gaza make to Israel are denied. Now, why Israel has to approve Palestine, Palestinian construction of anything? I don't know, but that's, that's the situation that we're in now, but that's kind of a long answer to your question, but there is some relief, but the only relief between bombings is that they're actually not being bombed. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that um, the people in the Palestinians are experiencing kind of hardships that, uh, are, are they're, they're denied things that we all take for granted and so on. And, stuff. and mm-hmm. I think it's um, it's that's obviously very true. But there's something there's always always been something about the Israel Palestine Israeli Palestinian conflict that that bothered me and that kind of for me set it apart from from really. Any other conflict, even in, in, yes. in let's say in, in, in the modern era. And there's, it's because, I mean, there have been their, uh, conflicts, um, territory or territory, territorial conflicts between different nations or different groups, um, throughout the 20th century and, and going back hundreds of years, of, but they've all, they, they, and they may have caused a, or provoked a war of some description, but that's, that was usually a, you know, some kind of a, or even, Maybe some kind of ethnic cleansing or something like that, but it usually uh, ended quite quickly, and right. uh, a, a solution w- w- was was mediated by you know the international community or the UN or whatever you know, or they came to a conclusion. as if
0: naturally some way or another.
2: Well, it's just, yeah, it's yes. just I mean, they came to a conclusion, and it was there was a force of either of the warring parties themselves wanted to come up with a, a solution after being tired of war. Uh, or tired of conflict or in, an international body came in and, and, and sorted it out and, and it was done. But that's not the case with Palestine. And, uh, and, it's, and it's being willfully allowed to, to continue. Uh, yes. I, 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 I presume at the behest of the Israelis and we know about the Israeli lobby in, in the West and in the US and in, and in Europe. And I suppose that's a big factor in, in, a, in um, enforcing those countries are getting those countries to just turn a blind eye to what's going on in Palestine. But it's there's something, I suppose my point is that there's something sadistic about uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in terms of what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians, you know. It's not just a kind of a, a, a war or a, a territorial conflict, uh, in a certain sense, an honest territorial yeah. conflict. There's something that has always struck me as it as, as being bordering on or, or, or really being uh, sadism on the part of the Israelis, where they're actually enjoying... Torturing effectively uh, a few million people, Uh, and and when I think every time I think of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I just think of those stories that have been in the press of uh, you know some guy who abducts some child or a girl or something like that, and then keeps them in his basement or something for you know 20 years and Mm -hmm. periodically rapes and tortures her. That's kind of that's for me that's that's what I think of when I think of the Israelis' approach towards Palestinians that they're actually doing it uh, because they enjoy it. Uh, for some reason, I mean, uh, I, I can't think of any other reason that they wouldn't come to some conclusion. If because most other countries in the world have uh, eventually come to some uh, reasonable conclusion, you know, uh, to, to their conflicts, but the Israelis don't seem inclined to do that at all.
4: Yes, and I think
2: I think it's, it's an
4: excellent point. If you remember, during the 2014 slaughter of Palestinians in Gaza, there were pictures of israelis setting up lawn furniture and watching they were watching a yeah. distance and watching watching the bombing and they were they were enjoying that very much also when you consider what's going on in the west bank there are, are dozens and dozens and dozens of checkpoints that are arbitrarily opened and closed that are manned mm-hmm. by israelis so in order for someone to get to school or to work or to visit a friend or family member they may have to go through a number of checkpoints they may wait hours in line at one checkpoint and then it'll arbitrarily be closed and they'll have to go somewhere else, miles away to an, another checkpoint. And maybe that'll be open, maybe it won't be. And it might be open for half an hour, it might be open for three hours. It just depends on the whim of the people people there. Mm-hmm. Also, and, and that that's, that's cruelty, certainly, sadistic cruelty. Also, if Palestinians have roads and the Palestinians are not allowed to Ride on Israeli-only roads in the West right. Bank, and if there's a road that Palestinians are allowed to ride on, and a new Israeli road bisects it, Israel uh, Palestinians can't cross over that intersection. They have to mm-hmm. go find some other way around. These are are means to demoralize and humiliate people, and that you, you mentioned sadism. I can't think of any other method that would and allow someone to do that. I can understand a cruel government saying, "We're going to to do this to these people." But why do the soldiers do this? How how can they live with themselves doing these mm. awful things? Now today, a lot of soldiers are reporting. They start a new group, a new organization. It's, it's a few years old now, and they're exposing the crimes that they themselves committed against Palestinians, and and that other soldiers committed. So that's one of the things that that. Is changing as far as attitudes are concerned.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, on that subject, I'll um, mm-hmm. oh, go ahead, Robert.
4: No, I was just going to say that it is this: the occupation of Palestine is unlike any other because it's been going on for decades and decades and decades, mm-hmm. and it's also like any other in that Israelis or are, are, well, Zionists, anyway, say that God promised them this property in the Bible. And they had it a thousand years or two thousand years, or whatever it was. Well, the Bible is not a document; it's not a book to be to govern nations by. And also, if the people who had the land a thousand years ago or, or longer are to be given it back, the entire planet would be in disarray because all right. of North America would have to surrender their. their pro- it just doesn't make logical sense, and yet that's what they hide behind.
2: Yeah. The, the other thing that it just occurred to me that also stands out for me, or the big, a big problem I have with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is that, sure, there may have been, there have been other uh, regions of the world where that kind of persecution has gone on. Although, as I said, it's usually fairly quickly um, kind of resolved. But the problem for me with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is that the Israelis uh, lay claim to being a civilized nation. Whereas other in other parts of the world where that kind of stuff has gone on, uh, the countries involved or or the people involved would have been maybe warlords or you know temporary governments, or whatever, or it might have been a revolution or some kind of a civil war of some description. Uh, but the Israelis make cl- claim to being you know part of the civilized West and they're recognised as that by the West. But they're acting yes. in a way, uh, as people have said, that uh, for example the apartheid regime in, in Africa acted and was condemned by the West. Uh, So that's what sticks in my crosswell, well, you know. Mm -hmm. They're given a free pass. And the U.S. refers
4: to Israel as the only democracy in the Middle East, which is, is a complete myth. And Israel says it has the most moral army in the world and has one of the most brutal armies
2: in the world. So yes, but you, it's, that, it's, that, that's always that's very often the case where someone that the army that isn't is the least moral in the world will be the one who will uh, most uh, vocally claim to be the most moral. You know, the, it's the in, complete inversion of the truth that uh, that is usually in the, the domain of, of, of pretty evil people. You know, mm-hmm. it, it is, and several the oh. United Nations, several
4: United Nations bodies have wanted to investigate uh, alleged war crimes that israelis have committed in in gaza and in the the west bank and israel does not allow them to come in to investigate now my thought is if they have nothing to hide Mm -hmm. why not welcome the investigation they could then exonerate themselves in front of the world but obviously they have very much to hide and that's why they don't allow it
3: yeah and they talk about both both sides of their mouths too like because on the one hand they'll say they're the most moral army and they have nothing to hide on the other hand they will they will justify whatever they do and kind of half admit it they'll say oh you know well it's just there are always civilian casualties and it's just we don't deliberately target them but yeah we admit that lots of civilians died so it's like they they kind of want to have it both ways and it's just it just seems to be whatever whatever criticism they get um whatever angle a critic takes um, against Israeli policy, they've got an answer ready for it. I mean, and right. I think that, and that's been going on. I think it was in the '80s where the the Israelis finally um, kind of really put a lot of money and effort into their PR strategy because, yes. uh, yeah, in, with with what happened in Lebanon in the '80s, there was like a a, a wave of anti or anti-Israel. Uh, coverage of what was going on, and so bad, bu- bad publicity, and so they they basically hired a whole bunch of PR teams to figure out how to, um, you know, how to frame things in the public so that they could get away with it, and they've been totally successful, uh, you know, for the last thirty years. Right, they have been, but
4: but that success is beginning to fade. Yeah, partly as a result of social media, because mm-hmm. people now have access to, to news and information that doesn't come from them sanitized to a corporate-owned
2: or government-sponsored media. Mhm. Yeah, so I mean, the, that subject, the, the other, I was just okay. going to say, Alan. the other aspect, there's another thing that really is galling to me. Uh, in 2000, I think you, you mentioned, Robert, in 2014, when the last time that the Israelis bombed, the carpet bombed the, the Gaza Strip, uh, Netanyahu came out at that time and actually had the temerity to condemn the Palestinians for, I think, as he said, forcing him to kill them. Uh, right, civilians, civilians, not 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 combatants, but actually civilians. You know, most of them are civilians mm-hmm. anyway. But he had, he had the, the unmitigated gall to uh, to actually to say something like that. And that's for me, that's just pure pathology. I mean, there's something seriously wrong with someone who says that. I mean, even Western military leaders and stuff would never come out and accuse the people that they are bombing of uh, of forcing them to do it.
4: And, and that's not unprecedented. in Israel, I believe, it was Golda Meir who said that Israelis don't want to kill Palestinian children, but Palestinians force them to. So right. this is this is people say this, and why the world doesn't drop their jaw in astonishment is, is mm. beyond me.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned um, social media and uh, and now you have Israeli soldiers who are coming out in public and, and stating, that they're in deep conflict uh, with their conscience and, and the types of acts that they were encouraged to do uh, in yes. Gaza and elsewhere. And um, particularly in the past year or two, we've seen a, a kind of a um, explosion in the amount of uh, attention that uh, the boycott divest uh, sanctions movement has, uh, has reached and you have people like Roger Waters coming out and, and, being really outspoken, um, on the subject. Um, so I guess my question is, Robert, do you think that, um, that there is, uh, I mean, Israeli belligerence is, is huge. Uh, yes. its resistance to criticism is, is, um, incredible. Uh, at the same time, um, you know, we've heard about, uh, We've heard about talks um, that uh, various Israeli officials have given in New York and the States uh, trying to reframe the uh, or respond to uh, this new level of awareness and criticism towards Israel. So in some sense, um, there, there is this greater amount of uh, of awareness and, and criticism that's being leveled towards the policies of Israel. Um, but do you think ultimately that that um, this new growing awareness can make any net difference in, in Israel's policies or, or in the world's kinds of uh, in the world's criticism of Israel and pressure that it can, uh, it can put on it to change its ways. I, I think it
4: can. I think uh, there, there are variety of, of responses to that. What I want to mention that is BDS is growing and its importance is seen in the fact that several states are attempting to to outlaw it. They're trying to make it illegal to boycott Israel. Now, why anybody in government thinks such a law would stand up in court, I don't know. I also think it's interesting that people who condemned any kind of violent resistance to the occupation are now also condemning peaceful resistance to the occupation. According to international law, any country that's occupied has a right to resist that occupation in any way possible, including by violent means. But here now is a peaceful means that the U.S. and other countries are attempting to outlaw. As far as how it can change Israeli policies, we're seeing already that a number of academics, a number of uh, entertainers and businesses are refusing to appear in or participate in Israeli projects. Right now, any toll, any financial toll that's taken on, that, that's taken on Israel is compensated for by U.S. aid, but that toll is growing and there's, there's some things that can't be compensated for when entertainers such as, as Bruce, Bruce Springsteen you know, or the killers refuse to participate in, refuse to give concerts in Israel. Then it's not a matter of money. This is something that is damaging the reputation of the country. So I think when enough of that happens, when enough people are, uh, academic organizations are boycotting, and the businesses will not uh, partner with with Israel, Israel Israeli businesses, then yes, there will have to be a change. I don't think it's possible under Benjamin Netanyahu's rule. However, he is rumored to be. Uh, under, definitely under investigation maybe indicted shortly at which point he would probably resign I don't see anybody much better replacing him but there couldn't be anybody worse so I think that that may be a, a small turning point also but in answer to your, your question basically I do think that the boycott divestment sanction movement and boycotts in general can be effective because they will hurt Israel, Israel's
0: international reputation on a moral level if nothing else
4: right people are, people wonder fans of these rock groups for example will see that they're not that they're refusing to appear in concerts in Israel and will wonder why and that will that that damages their their, their reputation and it is prob one of the most immoral nations in the world so people will begin to see that and recognize that, as, as I think they are to a, a ever-increasing in, ever degree.
3: Well, Bob, maybe you could, you mentioned Netanyahu's, uh, the investigation currently going on right now. Um, I don't think we've actually discussed it on, on the show yet um, in any previous weeks. Maybe could you give us a little background on what's going on and uh, just so we have an idea of, you know, what, what he's actually being investigated for?
4: He's been investigating for corruption involving bribery,
3: uh, basically stemming
4: from an earlier term. Both he and his wife are also under investigation. About a week or so ago, there was a major breakthrough when one of his associates agreed to testify against him in, in, uh, in order to escape a, a prison term. Hmm. So from what all the analysis that I've read indicates... Is that once they have, once this this individual has made this deal with with the government to testify against Netanyahu, and this was someone who's fairly high up, I don't remember their exact role, but fairly high up, and who they could have successfully indicted, and, and, and charged, and convicted. The government was willing to, the investigation investigative portion was willing to forego that conviction because they felt that that Netanyahu was was guilty and that they should go after him. Mm. So the indictment could be handed down at any time if it happens. But I do want to mention that that does make Netanyahu all the more dangerous. Any world leader who is under such a cloud as he is can distract the attention from himself Mm. by having a war. Mm. So this might be another time that he decides to do that. I think Palestine is at great risk. I think possibly Iran might be at risk, although I think to a lesser degree because Iran is a, a very powerful country but I think that know uh, is in some regards like a cornered wounded animal and it's going to lash out we just
3: don't know where yet hmm and and he recently met with uh, Vladimir Putin and it was kind of an interesting talk i've well I've read various um, kind of interpretations of of the interaction uh, ranging from just the you know run of the mill um you know two leaders talking to um netanyahu being kind of um almost hysterical and losing his lo- losing his wits to an extent he you know he he um was reading from notes whereas apparently he he rarely reads from notes and he almost right. sounded sounded nervous and didn't like know what he wanted to say which seems pretty out of character for Netanyahu. netanyahu strikes me as a kind of like Gregarious, totally full of himself, can handle himself in any situation because he'll just lie his, you know, lie his pants off. Um, mm-hmm. But he seemed well. I don't know what, what's your interpretation of the the recent meeting with Putin. Yes, I have read
4: similar things that you have read, and I've also read that Putin has simply told him, "I can't help you with this," uh, as mm-hmm. far as uh, Israel's perceived problem with Iran, because he, he doesn't he doesn't believe it. He has said that he feels that. Uh, that Netanyahu is exaggerating the situation, that it's not an issue and there's nothing he can do for him. So that is a very, is, very, is a very good sign and a, a very good step when another major world leader, uh, Putin, has sim- basically told Netanyahu that you're talking nonsense and I'm not going to get involved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I was very happy to see that happen. Uh, and hopefully he will stick to that. I, I think he really has no reason not to. Uh, Russia also has is, is allied with Iran, mm-hmm. and those two countries have worked to help stabilize Syria against mm-hmm. U.S. and Israeli uh, rebels, supported mm-hmm. rebels anyway. So Terrorists. I don't think... Terror, exactly. So I don't think Netanyahu, Netanyahu has a friend in Putin at
2: all, although he has a very good friend in
4: Trump. Mm yeah
2: like every like every. US president effectively I mean every US pe- president has really no choice but to be a friend of Israel, right?
4: Well they always have the choice and it's interesting that some of them when they leave office, such as Jimmy Carter who has yeah. in a recent book called Israel and apartheid regime, he's hmm. been very outspoken, but that was not the case with his president. Right. Barack Obama and Netanyahu had a very very strained relationship. Uh, to the point that Obama did the almost unheard of thing by by abstaining from a vote that criticized Israel in the UN. So uh, while they're in, Congress is bought by the pro-Israel lobbies. There is not much they do, although they certainly can do far, far more than they do. The US is always talking about how it supports the human rights struggles of people around the world except for Palestinians and how they support democracy for everyone except for Palestinians so this
2: this doesn't make any
4: sense mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. right but just on the in terms of you were saying the, the you know the situation may be changing because of social media but i just like to bring that down to kind of down to practicalities i suppose mm-hmm. uh it has kind of struck me for, for quite a long time that uh, given what the, uh, the Israelis are doing in, in the West Bank and in Palestine effectively, essentially colonizing it, that um, they're creating a situation where it's just it's not possible to ever create uh, a Palestinian state because you would have to uh, ethnically cleanse as they would call it obviously ethnically cleanse uh, Israelis from all of those towns and every year that goes by that the Israelis are on those settlements mm-hmm. uh, it becomes harder and harder for anybody to even envision the idea of of that land being given back to Palestinians so it seems to me that the idea of a of a two-state solution of a Palestinian state ever happening at this point is just uh, it's, it's 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 not there uh, uh, there is no possibility of that happening so in that case uh, but at the same time, I can't imagine Palestinians ever really uh, living in Israeli state, uh, you know, peaceably or being able or allowed to live peaceably in an Israeli state as as equal citizens. So it's almost it's uh, it looks to me like it's a situation that's set up to go to really go nowhere. Well,
4: there's not going to be an easy solution, but there there certainly is a solution. There are about half a million settlers now living in the West Bank. They're mm-hmm. all living there illegally. That right. land is um, by international standards belongs to Palestine. According to international law, an occupying nation cannot move its citizens permanently onto the occupied territories. So what needs to happen is the international community has to fulfill its responsibilities and reestablish the pre-1967 borders, which means if the, uh, the settlers have to leave, they have to leave. They are there illegally, if someone were camping in my backyard, it didn't really matter how long they were in there. It's still my backyard. They have to get out. And it's the same, same situation here. Netanyahu has said during his latest election a year and a half ago that he has no intention of relocating one single settler, which shows right. how, how amenable he is to any kind of a, a solution to this issue. I think the, it's obvious that Israel's goal is to just keep Establishing facts on the ground, encroaching more and more on Palestinian territory until there is nothing left of it.
3: Mm-hmm, right. Well, and, and Netanyahu just said the same thing this week. Um, around the same time that he met with Putin, he said that um, you know the, the settlements, the colonies in the West Bank, would be there, would be Israel forever. This is Israeli land forever. So he kind of just doubled down on that.
4: Right. And the international community has to do more than say we disagree with that. They have, the international community has to take action. Uh, it hasn't yet, and I don't believe under the new, the current UN. I don't think Secretary General, although he has spoken very favorably of Palestine, he's criticized the occupation, criticized Israel. I don't think he's going to take any major, significant action, as, as none of his predecessors have either. Mm-hmm.
1: There's been a drive over the past uh, 20 years on behalf of. Uh... Israel and particularly Netanyahu, uh, just getting back to Iran for a moment, uh, mm-hmm. to, to say that uh, Iran is just on the verge, a few months away, from uh, getting uh, nuclear bombs uh, online. And then when that happens, boom, it's going to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Uh, so we've been hearing this um, yes. rhetoric for, for years and years. And um, there's nothing in in Iran's history, it seems, to suggest that it, it's going to act aggressively. It just seems to be resisting uh, Israel's uh, hegemonic um, goals in the Middle East. Uh, not yes. to mention the fact that uh, that Israel is the only established, acknowledged nuclear power uh, in the Middle East. And and if Iran were to uh, act aggressively, they would basically be committing suicide, um, right. which which is insane. But no one no one seems to be saying that uh, in, in the news. Uh, why why do you think Israel finds Iran to be such a threat that it that it has uh, for so many years um, tried to vilify it? It's killed its uh, its scientists. It's 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 uh, been uh, a participant in uh, in cyber warfare what why do you think that is
4: okay there's uh, the, the main i think you you've actually addressed the reason yourself in that israel wants to be the only what well, wants to be the dominant nation in the in the middle east and that's why it is and has for decades been inventing threats from another dominant nation in the middle east as, as you mentioned, Iran does not seem aggressive. Uh, Iran has not invaded another country in over 200 years. It has certainly worked with other countries, it worked with Russia to help uh, the Syrian government. It, When it's been invaded, as it was uh, in the 80s by Iraq, it certainly fights, but it has not been the aggressor ever. And Netanyahu has been saying since the early 90s, as you mentioned, that Iran is just a few years away. They're a few years away, two years, then three years, then five years, then a few months, over a period of, of over 20 years. Also, Israel has never acknowledged that it has nuclear weapons, although everyone knows that it does. But it has certainly never allowed uh, weapons inspectors to, to come in and inspect their facilities. I, I, I feel that the fewer nuclear weapons in the world, the better. But if Israel is allowed to have them, I don't see why Iran isn't allowed to have them. As you said, Iran, uh, Israel has assassinated Iranian scientists. When I visited Iran uh, in July, I saw the tomb of, of two of those scientists I was able to visit, which is highly aggressive and is terrorist activity, but it isn't condemned for that. But in answer to your question, Israel wants to be the only powerful country in the Middle East. And because of the support it gets in the US, it is certainly one of the most powerful in the Middle East. But with any competition from Iran, it, it seen as threatening to, to Israel. Mm. Yeah, but, I, I have, think,
2: go ahead. yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just uh, going to mention
4: that, no, you you go, you go.
2: <laughs> I was just going to add to that by, by just briefly by saying that, uh, I mean, Israel is in, in a kind of ridiculous situation where you have this, um, we have this w- Western um, Westernized country. Supposedly. Oops. You have, this Westernized, you have this Westernized country in the you know created six or seven years ago in the Middle East uh, that is that was antagonistic to all of the Arab Muslim uh, nations around it, and it expected to survive uh, and. Against all the odds, it did because it was supported by the West, and the West had effectively, after you know World War One or whatever, had effectively co-opted uh, many of the, the the major countries or in the Middle East uh, by drawing them out of the Middle East and and uh, infiltrating <coughs> uh, governments in the Middle East and effectively controlling them so that they're those those nominally Arab or Middle Eastern. Uh, countries are effectively very much Western-aligned now, and I'm speaking here primarily, let's say, of Saudi Arabia and, yes. um, and, and smaller countries like Qatar and Kuwait and stuff, But uh, and even at a certain time, Iraq, but then they turned on Iraq. So they, the US has obviously been interfering in the Middle East. A lot of people make that claim that they've been doing that for Israel, and that's maybe to some extent true, but they have their own agenda as well. But Israel has survived against all the odds in that position that it's in, surrounded by technically people that it, that it that it is enemies with because of uh, Western Western influence and Western interference in the Middle East. Now, after Syria uh, and Russian intervention in the Middle East and the kind of like the this this um, alliance effectively being made between Russia uh, and Iran and now Syria haven't been saved from the from the jaws of of destruction. Um, this is a major threat to Israel because there's a potential there for a, a status quo, or not a status quo, but, a, but a, new, a, new, a new status quo to to manifest itself in a more natural order to manifest in the Middle East, which would be that the Middle East would be dominated by the biggest, genuinely uh, Arab or Muslim uh, countries mm-hmm. in, that, in that region, and they would not be favorable towards Israel. Uh, so right. Israel really is has an existential problem, but it's an existential problem of its own creation by deciding to set themselves up in the Middle East surrounded by Muslims and then more or less declare that these people are our enemies. Yes, yes, and that's, uh, that's something that keeps, I think,
4: Zionist society going. They are always saying everything is an existential threat. And yes, they have, there is hostility, among the Arab world towards Israel, mainly because of what it has done in continues to Palestine. As you mentioned, the West has made a lot of alliances and provide a lot of support to a lot of Arab countries, so they are more Compliant. amenable maybe to having Israel there. But mm-hmm. I don't think that Israel could exist where it is peacefully with its neighbors if it made peace with Palestine and, and granted Palestine the borders that the international community recognizes, Israel has a very, very powerful army, a military overall, has nuclear weapons. No country, regardless of the hostility in the countries around it, it isn't threatened by anyone. There is no existential threat. Possibly, it may implode due to the corruption and the uh, the, the, the apartheid system that it it operates under. But as far as any real threat from any of its neighbors, some which are extremely hostile to it, it doesn't exist.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. Hmm. It doesn't have to exist, let's say, except that the Israelis insist that it does and then create that reality in a certain sense.
4: If Israel wanted to be a reasonable international partner on the global stage then it would end the occupation end the blockade uh, withdraw to the pre-1967 borders and establish more there there is trade that goes on between Israel and some of the Arab countries now it could establish more trade more uh, various kinds of alliances but there is so much hostility right now that's not going to happen as you said it's a self-created problem
2: Hmm. yeah
3: well, uh, Bob, maybe we're going to wrap up in a few minutes, but I just w- maybe w- wanted to come back to uh, the Palestinians for a moment. Um, yes. Recently, in the past weeks and months, uh, there's been a conflict going on in in and around the Al Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. I was wondering if you could just give us a rundown on what's been happening and um, like what the what the Israeli kind of provocations have been and what the the Palestinian responses have been. Um, just Give, give our listeners an idea of what's going on at the moment.
4: Okay. I, I could discuss this for quite a long time, so yeah. I'm going to make it short. Uh, Alaska Mosque is one of the most sacred sites in all of Islam, and uh, Muslims are supposed to have free access to it. Now, there was some violence several weeks ago which caused the uh, Israeli – Government to install checkpoints there. The Palestinians had a huge peaceful protest that lasted days and days and days. And finally those, those checkpoints were removed. However, that does not prevent settlers from coming in for the sole purpose of destroying or uh, disrupting people in prayer. Uh, they're guarded by Israeli soldiers. Uh, Israel Allows, allows this to happen, will not protect the victims, only protects the perpetrators. So this is, this is a, a flashpoint in the conflict uh, as far as ownership of this, this, this land. It was under Jordanian uh, administration prior to the 1967 war, but since then it's been mainly under an Israeli, uh, is, Israeli control as, as all of, of Palestine is. But there has been provocation on the Israeli side, which has led to reasonable responses from uh, Palestinians. When someone is, is hitting you and uh, harassing you in a, a variety of ways and arresting you for no charges, certainly people are going to respond to that. And they may respond to violence, which is acceptable under international law. So when that happens, then, of course, Israel clamps down very harshly. But in this in this case they did withdraw, at least partly because of pressure from the peaceful protesters. There was also a lot of international pressure on Israel to remove those those checkpoints.
1: Hmm.
4: But we're gonna see more from this site, I'm sure, and yeah. it won't all be good. Yeah.
3: Well all right. Um, thanks Bob for, for joining us today. It's been it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I just want to again Relate the title of your book. It's Essays on Palestine. You can get it on Amazon or at redpillpress.com, and it's available on Kindle as well. You can also check out Bob's website at robertfantina.com. Um, thanks for having us on, Bob. And did you have any final thoughts? Uh, well, I just want to say thank you. It's been a pleasure. I always enjoy these
4: conversations uh, with you. And uh, thank you very much.
3: All right. Great. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, thanks. To you
4: Thanks, Robert. And thanks Thank you. for your hard
3: work.
1: Keep bye up the bye. Works. Thank Take you. Bye bye. Bye. Oh,
3: all right. So well, that one done. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, maybe it? just, just to, to kind of uh, um, as a launching point for for further discussion. Uh, Bob had mentioned just briefly Syria and Iran, and um, just to give a little bit of updates on what's going on there. So last time we talked about Syria, the, uh, the Syrian army had been, um, you know, taking back lots of territory, basically just, it's more of the same. So <clears throat> the, the Syrians are getting closer and closer to Deir zor and, um, they, cl- they fully closed one of those, uh, pockets of ISIS in, in Hamah and North of, of Palmyra. And the other one is, is, you know, shrinking daily. So, um, it's pretty much just been the same as last week when we talked about it um statements from the russians basically saying that uh that you know isis is on its last egg, last legs and last um, eggs last eggs. no more eggs for isis
2: uh, that's uh, that's the end of them you know <laughs> yeah. no more eggs
3: no it can't survive without eggs
2: uh,
3: allah allah <laughs> so akbar so that's been going on but uh one thing that uh who knows what'll happen of it if it's just kind of more um you know wartime uh, news, but um, Syrian girl and even uh, Maria Zakharova have both come out and said that the the rebels, essentially the the, exist, the the still existing rebels in the kind of western part of the country, are are preparing uh, chemical attacks, uh, kind of a repeat of what's happened several times, basically planning chemical attacks to then blame on the Syrian government. And uh, of course, like, I believe it was Nikki Haley again, who had said that, uh, um, that, how did she put it? (laughs) She, she, she basically said that if there was a chemical attack, we will assume the Syrian government is responsible and, and um, basically retaliate against them. Um, and that's it. Basically, she admitted it. we wouldn't investigate. We'd just, if, if that happens, then it's going to be the Syrians like the, the government. and, and
2: if, no if, this, if the Syrian government, which is, along with Russia, on the verge of complete victory and a complete rout of the Western-sponsored jihadis in Syria, if it decides, for some bizarre reason, to fire chemical weapons at its own people and kill them all at civilians, well, then we will automatically assume that, well, that they did it.
3: Yeah.
2: And we will bomb them. And that makes sense. I mean, well, go away. just mm-hmm. that. Well, yeah, I, I want a job at the, at the UN, <laughs> right? But not to say anything. I just want a boxing glove on the end of a long stick. <laughs> <laughs> Bop. So whenever, when she's there and she says stuff like that, That's where I would just come out and do my job, and I'd pay. I'd want a lot of money for it, you know, because I'd have to get quite close to her. Mm -hmm. You know, that would probably be dangerous.
3: It would be a boon for the UN because, I mean, their you know televised events and speeches, the the viewership would go up through the roofs. Um, mm. Yeah, you know, I mean, they they probably get more funding because you know they'd be more popular. That's what they need. They need some some entertainment, uh, some truthful entertainment where we get to see Nikki Haley hit with a um, a boxing glove on the end of a stick. Yeah, well,
2: uh,
3: or that British guy. I hate that British guy, whatever his name is.
2: Yeah. Oh. Um. Yeah. Well, one question I was going to ask there, but I was going to propose for consideration was, I mean you have Syria seeming to kind of wrap up, you know, and is that just a natural result of, of the almost two years of Russian involvement? You know, so you had a, a big player come in that could actually, uh, help the Syrian army to effectively defeat the jihadis or does it have anything to do with, uh, Trump? You know I've, the two seem to have yeah. coincided, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So it's hard yeah. to know one way or the yeah. other, you know.
3: And it has been strange, like it's almost like there was a switch, like a month or two ago, and coincidentally oh, yeah. that that was around the time that the you know the U.S. announced that it was ending its CIA, um, you know, train and equip mission for for rebels mm-hmm. in Syria. So it does seem it does seem very coincidental. I would you know I would say my first instinct is that it's a bit of both um, that. That of course, you know, I, I think that the Russians have played a large role, and but then um, I could see um, things just kind of continuing on as they were, kind of kind of like a, a lower level um, Israel-Palestine conflict, where it's just this nonstop kind of even kind of like Afghanistan in the '80s, um, just lo- this long slog uh, where the rebels just keep getting weapons, and it's just this kind of very slow. Um, you know, progression and what's actually going on. But, mm-hmm. but, um, along with, you know, along with Trump, I, you know, I, I'd say, I think
1: that that has something to do with it. That's just, well, you know. the, the flip side to all of this is that, you know, Trump hasn't said to Nikki Haley, you're fired yet. And, um, considering that he's, he's had the screws put to him by the, by the military and and other interests in the military industrial complex in the U S it, it really is worrisome that that she would be priming uh, the the public to believe that the U.S. would um, instantaneously kind of uh, react and respond to a so-called uh, chemical attack on the part of Assad. So, uh, you know, if, if we do see something like that, um, which which seems quite probable, uh, especially since. You know, Israel is kind of gunning for for some kind of way back in to destabilize well, the situation that, uh, you know that, that
0: situation be, has <clears throat> happened
1: and, and it has happened right yeah and, and and it has the potential I think to happen again in in an even bigger and more destructive way quite possibly hmm. I don't know what do you guys think of that could
2: the US or
0: not it would be another pew pew
2: yeah I don't think they can to be honest I don't think they can do anything Anything, um, because I mean, there's nothing they can do that would really be that effective, you know, uh, at this point, you know, especially with uh, Russian, you know, missile defense capabilities in, in in Syria and stuff. I mean, I don't think they could actually, you know, engage in Syria in any effective way that would would achieve what they wanted, you know. And I, and I think they're smart enough to realize that. Well, there's no point in doing this if we look at it and say well we can't do it you know it it, it wouldn't work so um well there's there a few things that have happened over the past few years i mean along with it's interesting the way they all kind of you have to give a lot of credit to russia you know obviously russia intervening uh, almost two years ago now in september 2015 and then <clears throat> uh not long after that well nine months later whatever you had the you had the coup turkey yeah uh, in Turkey in July 2016 which basically put um, Erdogan on notice that he needed to pick a side type of thing and, he, and, he, and, and, and that there were people out to get him you know that he wasn't playing playing ball the way he should have been uh, so that seems to have had an effect in terms of Turkish involvement in in allowing a kind of open border and also then this what what consolidated that uh, that change in Turkish allegiance towards Russia and Iran was the uh, was the, in the Plan B, which was again provoked by Russian interference in Syria and spoiling their Plan A of just having jihadis overrun the country. Uh, the Americans went and the Saudis went for Plan B, which was to have a Kurdish and the Israelis went for, to have a Kurdish a Kurdistan in Syria, and that then uh, really um, sealed the deal effectively for for um, for for turkey in terms of which side it was on because obviously turkey are, are not very the turks uh, are very unhappy about the idea of uh, of the kurds getting their own country you know so uh, it's and, and this has all happened before trump could really have had any significant uh influence but before he was even president president obviously so it seems that they just messed it up you know the the west effectively the the Americans and their Western partners and their Middle Eastern partners just messed up Syria completely because uh, because someone stood up to them, basically because Russia stood up to them, you know? I mean, sure, it's a cakewalk when you can just go into any country and want blow the crap out of it, say he's killing his own people, let's bomb it, let's have a bunch of rebels or jihadis run into it and then, you know, let the country go to ruin, you know, and <clears throat> see what happens afterwards, but at least we'll take it out of commission. Uh, dead easy when there's no opposition, but as soon as there's opposition, it's like it all goes wrong for them. They, you know, they mess it up completely. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, it's understandable that, that would happen you know, as soon as somebody stands up to, to a bully type thing, well then his plans don't work anymore and, and it might drive him to do, to take action, uh, you know, to, to change plans that, that then just make things worse in a certain sense, you know. And the idea that you shouldn't be doing this to begin with obviously never comes uh, comes into the equation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um But yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to know, but that that gets back to the really as we were saying there that, um, you know, I mean, I think it was, I can't remember who it was, but some bigwig in America, I don't know if it was Kissinger or some state, some, I can't remember who it was, said basically was cautioning, not too long ago, maybe a couple of months ago, cautioning about, um, cautioning the US military about, and Trump about taking any action, decisive action against, uh, ISIS, <clears throat> because if you get rid of ISIS, um, well, then you're going to leave a kind of, leave leave the way open for what he, they called, a, what he called, this person called an Iranian kind of uh, empire or uh, something along those lines an, an arc of influence where Iran would just kind of basically come in there to Syria and that's their big problem is is that obviously Iran has been playing a big big part in, in the Syrian and in, in fighting the Americans, the Western terrorists in Syria, so uh, Iran now has a big stake in any new Syria uh, and, and the, the part of the reason they ignited the civil war in Syria was to try and effectively deal a, a blow to Iran mm-hmm. but the result is that, that Iran is going to actually get what it wants mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, that's just fecklessness you know, these people, I mean it's It's all coming apart at the seams, you know, really, uh, for them. And uh, that's what they're afraid of. And sure, Iran's a big country, 8 million people, you know, big country, massive amount of resources and um, natural resources. Um, Yeah, Iran's gearing up to basically replace, um, you know, replace Saudi Arabia Hmm. as the main petrol station in the Middle East. Uh, And that's what they're pooing their pants about, you know, and that's why Israel is... Itself. but as Ro- Robert was saying, Robert Fontaine was saying that um, you know Israel could, if it saw had some sense and, and saw the way the wind was blowing, it could do a lot to you know uh, build a, a kind of future where it could live with uh, live peaceably in the region. But that's not what they're about. Mm-mm. That's not why they're there. I mean, look at the basis on the basis on which they Israel actually exists. God gave us this land 2,000 years ago, you're not talking about rational people. Mm -hmm. You're not talking about people who actually have their heads grounded in a practical reality in the future and working together and and, and what's good for everybody. You know, it's, it's, we're the chosen people. We own this. Everybody bow down to us. Well, I'm sorry, but you might get away with that for a while, but eventually you're going down, dude. Mm -hmm.
3: Well, Maybe we can move on, on. to a, maybe we can move on to another topic. Um, you no, know you don't agree. Yeah, no, I agree.
2: Neil's laughing at me here for saying oh, Neil's going laughing? Down. Yeah, <laughs> <They're>
3: going down. <laughs> well, we'll see. I, I just I couldn't have said
0: it better. So
2: All right. I'm laughing
0: in agreement.
3: <laughs> well, uh, Joe, you made you obliquely reference things, you know, American plans, you know, just making things worse. Um, and we've had another example of that in the last week. The U.S. decided to to close down some Russian diplomatic facilities, including, uh, I believe, it was the consulate in 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 San Francisco and the like the trade mission uh, building that they had there. So this is apparently, I guess, a response to the Russians deciding to cut back the um, you know diplomatic staff and supporting staff in in Russia. Uh, down to the level so that the U.S. and Russia have the same number of um, you know diplomats and staff in each country. Um, so they decided to close down this consulate and basically gave them what like uh, an eight, 18 eighteen-hour or thirty-six-hour notice that uh, you know you have to be out. And then just yesterday, <clears throat> the FBI, well, for the the, the Russians, um, you know, were hanging around these facilities with with cameras and kind of live streaming the the FBI doing their um, Uh, What what would you call it? Scoping out the place, basically. So they're going through the hallways, looking in the closets, you know, looking up in the attic. (laughs) I don't know, making sure nothing nefarious is there. I don't know what they thought they were looking for. Um, But this, again, it's it's one of those kind of bizarro um, bizarro world moments where um, even with the the Obama's decision, you know, at the end of his term last year to to evict. you know the however many diplomats and seize the their their property that they were living on. <clears throat> I
1: think it was thirty five. Thirty
3: five. I mean, it's it's illegal. It's against international law. That it goes against every um, international norm of you know international diplomacy and how you treat other countries' diplomats. Even we just put up an article today, I think. Even even Saudi Arabia and Iran, or was the, those the two? Uh, I think it was Saudi Arabia and Iran have. You know, treat each other's diplomats better than the U.S. Uh, treats Russia's diplomats. And um, the U.S. even said that these these current diplomats that were in the, the facilities that were just closed lost their diplomatic immunity. Now, that too is just blatantly wrong and not true. Um, according to the international uh, law, the st- and like international standards, the diplomats have their immunity until they leave the country um, you know, even if there's a closure of a property or something like that. So that I I don't know what the
1: it's um it's actually the uh, Vienna conventions
3: Vienna conventions yeah that,
1: that were established uh, in like 1961. So what what we're basically seeing is a patently illegal act mm-hmm. on the part of the U S government to uh, to evict uh, these Russian uh, consulate members, and um, it's uh you know. If it were up to Trump, uh, of course, I don't think any of this would be occurring. Uh, So they, you know, as we were saying before, uh, there are some um, pressures being brought to bear on him to retaliate for the 400 or so some odd um, Americans that have been asked to leave the Russian uh, well, it, U.S. consulate in Russia.
3: And it wasn't even that. It was 455 staff members, and that includes Russian staff members, because at any consulate or, you know, embassy, the the, the, the people of that country who, who own the embassy will hire, like, locals, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, it wasn't even 450 uh, U.S. Uh, members. It could have, like, it, it's up to the U.S. to choose, so, I you know, it could be as many as 400 of those are Russians. We don't know. But go
1: on. Well, um just, just as a kind of side note, uh, a congressman re- recently came out to state um, that uh, – his name is Brad Sherman. I think he's a Democrat from uh, California uh, – that uh, he, he and others are suffering from a kind of Trump derangement syndrome, uh, which is basically that uh, – his point was that they are absolutely compelled or forced to say – exactly the opposite of, of whatever it is that Trump wants to do uh, on either domestic or foreign policy. So he said, thank God Trump hasn't, uh, hasn't said anything about Mother's Day, because then he would be forced to kind of uh, put in some legislation outlawing Mother's Day. So the point is that um, you know Trump, Trump meets with Putin, and it's a highly successful meeting in, in France a couple of months ago. Uh, so now there there is this kind of a counterbalancing deep state um, uh, pressure and, uh, and acts of aggression towards Russia, um, and th- there's there seems to be very little that that's in his power to do anything about this at the moment. So I think that mm. that's kind of what we're seeing here.
2: Yeah, let's move on to uh, boats. Boats. Ships. Yeah.
3: What's on what's up with all all the boats recently?
2: Neil's got a scoop. He knows what, what went down.
0: This is about the two US ships that were hit by giant cargo ships.
2: Did Russia hack them? <laughs>
0: um Let's see. Most recent incident, august twentieth. Ten US sailors killed, five injured. That's the USS uh, John S. McCain, Yo. which is incredible. I mean, I think it happened the day McCain got out of hospital. That's symbolic. Um, it collides with a tanker three times its size uh, just east of Singapore and basically the Strait of Malacca on the way out of it to the South China Sea. The McCain is, of course, named after, <laughs> get this, John McCain's father is John S. McCain Jr., John McCain's grandfather is John S. McCain Sr. So so what is John? These <laughs> people are like robots, they just sort of reproduce in a kind of a... <laughs> so what is so what is John they're, they're, they're manufactured somewhere. I will They'll have so, a clue. <laughs> <laughs> I think John I think he's John S. McCain III, John, oh, the, third, yeah. go, the third, which well, is an American elite tradition to go on the third. Senior um, Jr. Thank God John diminutive, I don't know. Thank God our McCain didn't have a son, because then yeah. well, um Anyway, the the McCain is not named after the senator. It's named after the father and grandfather who were both admirals in the Navy anyway. So uh, in this incident, it it was smacked by the ALNIC, a massive 600-foot-long oil tanker. That incident on August 20th happened three days after the top three commanders of the USS Fitzgerald were officially relieved of command for the incident that happened just outside of Tokyo in June. Seven US sailors were killed that time. So that's 17 dead sailors. I mean, the US hasn't lost 17 sailors since, I think, World War II. Certainly not in such a short time A time span. Incredible. And it does strongly suggest, you know, an attack, because that doesn't just happen, right? Um they have a few, a couple of things. There are two other smaller incidents. One, um, another destroyer ran aground in Korea. And that commander was fired for a total for incompetence. Um, and in a fourth case, sorry, that ran aground, I think, in Japan. A fourth case was in Korea back earlier this year, May, I think. In this case, a small ship, uh, f- fishing vessel. Collided with another ship. In that case, it wasn't so bad, no one was killed. But the two recent incidents are crazy. I mean, um, they're both the same class of ship, U.S. destroyers. Both have the same size crew. They're both rammed by thirty thousand plus sized ton tankers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One on the port side, one starboard. But both slam into compartments where, I guess, a lot of sails were asleep. That's, mm-hmm. that's how middle they the initially report them as missing. Well, we don't know where they are. But well, it's not that they're missing. These these places flooded instantaneously. Right. They they had to shut down
2: yeah.
0: compartments below. The ships were going to sink. Mm-hmm. That's why they could never find them until a week later.
2: Right. And it was the middle of the night for the most recent one. It was 5 o'clock in the morning, 4 or 5 Yeah, I the think
0: they were both nighttime, both find where they're nothing wrong well, the, um,
2: the theory I've uh, the explanation I've heard about this which will kind of fit is that the u.s is so desperate to get um, to get stuff out there over in in, in Asia in the seas you know in South China Sea and patrol they're so eager to get uh, ships and people on ships over there that they're cutting short the kind of sea trials and stuff for for new ships that they build uh, and Primarily in terms of the training for um, for the for the people who would man those ships. I mean, there, there's more and more of them. They're putting a lot more of them over there into a, an area that has a high density of, uh, of of shipping lanes and commerce shipping and stuff. And these people haven't had the, the training, haven't spent long enough uh, in training to, to to know how to navigate in these areas and uh, therefore they're screwing up. And so it's like people who don't really know how to drive in a big city type thing, they just pass their test, stick them into the middle of a major city and say there you go and they end up crashing the car. Uh, sure they're an admiral or whatever but they haven't and they may have a lot of years under their belt but they haven't, a lot of them haven't been, there's a lot more of them being put in these, this area over in uh, in Asia in the waters around Asia in the Malacca Straits and all that kind of stuff. Um, near China because of the Chinese threat, right? They want to project power and project their uh, their military prowess and stuff, and so that's one explanation I heard. That that
0: that is basically the official Pentagon line. Mm. They're overstretched, mm. um, and they've got new staff who they don't put it in these terms. That they're basically saying they don't know how to sail. Right. That is incredible when you think about it. Like. <laughs> Well, it's one thing they're so stretched.
2: It's one thing so not, it's not that necessarily they don't know how to sail, but it's it's that you have to look at the amount. There's a map I saw the other day, uh, uh kind of like a to a 24-hour yeah uh, of, of the shipping lanes and the, uh, the boats going. And particularly if you look at that area, it's just full. You know, I mean, it's like it is almost like a uh, especially when you get closer to closer to the land. You know, it's just there's boats going past all the time, you know, coming to and from 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 China to, to the to the west. It's just a uh, char yeah. block, you know, and uh, and so these guys are coming in and it's like an intersection, you know. There's a bunch of boats all going in one direction and they're tra- and they have to go through, you know, steam along and take take into consideration
0: the, well, the people ask though how is speed it and possible. all that kind of stuff. It uh, yes, it's extremely busy, but mm-hmm. still there's enough space and time, even in busy shipping lanes. Four U.S. destroyers to go straight like across them. Yeah. They obviously did because they both got smacked clean on the side, right. almost head-on. Um, there's so much high tech out there these days that just like we're going to have self-driving cars, right. there are self-driving ships. They can put yeah. on autopilot some right. of these tankers. That was rumored to be the case with the the one of Japan. Um, and then vice versa. How on earth does? Mm-hmm. Does a sophisticated U.S. destroyer not detect or see what's ahead of it? Mm-hmm. The destroyers will typically um, fly, fly, fly dark, or you don't fly in the seas. What do you do? You swim. They they typically sail, sorry, to uh, basically incognito to avoid detection. You cannot tr- track the ships because they don't want to be seen. Where they're going. They'll announce maybe before or after a mission is complete. In, in both of these cases, both had been in the South China Sea. Uh, in fact, the USS McCain was smacked just three days after returning from a patrol in the South China Sea, which the Chinese have said, they, in the strongest terms, they condemned the provocative actions of the USS McCain passing through and close to the disputed Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. Well, that that naturally invited people to wonder if there's been some kind of attack or hacking or something like that. It, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think. There's any, I, I think it is just incredible coincidence or. It's not incredible. There's a mundane explanation for it, and it's something to do with how busy the seas are and um, how overburdened or, as you said, Joe, unprepared some of the newer staff are on the Mm -hmm. ships. Um, But we do live in a time where The technology exists to remotely hijack cars, airplanes, boats. Um, People are wondering, you know, can that happen? I I think it can. I think you could remotely hijack uh, anything in this day and age and make it look like... I'd
2: say, I'm not sure sure about hijacking, but I'd say for a ship, possibly a more plausible idea would be that um uh, navigation systems were interfered with you know um by some kind of tech you know that's possibly you know where your where your navigation systems kind of go offline for a period of time and you can't get them back or something like that you know or your navigation is messed with in some way so it's kind of I suppose kind of a kind of hacking but um that's possible we don't know but uh, someone on the chat room was saying there that uh, he didn't give a link though but uh, an admiral from the seventh fleet said that they had information that there was that was pretty much gone, that had pretty much gone classified, indicating there's possibly more to the story by, than the mainstream is saying, but of course there might be more to the story, yeah. Um, I, won't, I won't be told about it, but I don't know. It, it just fits pretty well with me, the idea of being of an empire being overstretched, you know, and therefore, I mean, people, it's a bit of a cliche almost, what happens when you overstretch your empire, you know, things start to go wrong um, and overstretched can mean many different things, you know, but it just means that you're not operating in a very efficient way. And then accidents happen, you know, Well, you you need to go home.
1: One of the speculations about this, um, was that, uh, there is a certain amount of cohesiveness and competence that is accompanied by a sense of purpose and that, um, the Navy and, and other armed forces and not feeling the kind of, um, moral purpose of their mission, uh, the things that they were being, uh, tasked to, to work on, uh, that this is in some way could be in part a manifestation of, um, you know, uh, the, the armed forces just not having a, a real kind of, uh, um, impetus to, to do what they're doing. Uh, we've heard a lot about, um, and again, I don't know how much it, it plays into this, but I thought it was an interesting theory. And I, I got to thinking a little bit about the Russian forces in Syria and uh, and elsewhere, and how they are incredibly efficient and uh, and competent at at, um, at fulfilling their missions. And this is because they, you know, one, they know it's kind of a life and death situation for Russia and for other nations they're aligned with. Um, so. You just have to wonder if if the U.S. Uh, armed forces, in some part, don't feel bogged down in all of this kind of gray area of you know what the hell are we doing? Uh, there's no, there, there's been no really coherent, cohesive foreign policy in the U.S. for so long. Uh, the armed forces uh, have to be understanding that on some level. Um, and, and we've yeah. read about people leaving the Air Force. Uh, they're low on uh, personnel as well. Um, so who knows if, if maybe this isn't a, 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 I mean, an influence.
0: I, I can't about 10 or 15 incidences of U.S. fighter jets crashing inside the U.S. on this coast or in one of its um, island bases like Hawaii just in mm-hmm. the last couple of years. It's insane. mm mm-hmm. And they're all put down to accidents, pilot error or technical malfunction.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, there was one thing about the, the collision, the Japan one, the tanker that ran into the destroyer, there are images of the the course that it it had taken in the hours before the collision. And, I'm trying to remember how exactly it looked. It was pretty jagged, but it essentially, it was going on course, and then it did like a few loops in a certain direction.
0: No, no, that's been explained. The reason for that confusion is because the U.S. Navy insists that the time of accident was one hour ahead of what the Japanese Coast Guard is saying it was. Okay. It's a 50-minute discrepancy. And so depending on where you put the exact time of the accident, it means that that loop comes before or after the crash. Okay. So I think it, that's actually explained by the fact that it happens and the ship is going in a straight line from some a to B. From some city not far away, actually. But it's traveling overnight. It's about to hit Tokyo Bay. And then it starts to take that strange right turn, I think, uh, uh, Starboard turn south and then it starts to loop as supposedly the, the ship's crew wakes up because it's on autopilot perhaps mm. and then they loop back around to find what they may have hit which that, there's some questions there as well. I think you should know right away what you've hit but yeah. but anyway, that, that strange loop is them coming back to the scene of the incident after okay. Okay. hitting it. Yeah.
2: I think there's two possible explanations that are the most plausible. One is that uh, it was transported into another dimension temporarily and then appeared um, right in front of the ship and they were like, holy F, what the, where did that come from? And, uh, and the other one, which is maybe more plausible, is that Donald Trump was actually, had taken control of the ship. You know, he was on the on the line and he was actually He's giving directions. He was giving directions as to what should we done, you know? And uh, so, you know, when in doubt, blame Trump. No, because he did actually tell previously earlier this year, he told uh, there was a ship that he had ordered to go to the South Ch- yeah. China Sea. Yeah. And for some reason, it actually went to Australia, which he, it happens he, to be in the opposite direction. He's, no, he ordered it to go for the Korean Peninsula. Right. But it went to Australia. Right. And, uh, so, I mean, that, that's, that's an example of his naviga- navigational uh, skills right there. So it's possible that he was interfering with these ships as well. Um, in terms of their their mission you know and the other problem i have with them um, suspecting
0: china is that it doesn't follow their mo no um it's one thing to you know sneakily uh incapacitate the us in some way or another but actually murdering us sailors in an unprovoked attack uh i highly doubt it and anyway the the pentagon would be screaming bloody murder if they caught even the slightest whiff that, that was yeah. what actually happened
2: you don't need to do that you know and as russia has ex- has demonstrated as well you don't need to do that to america you know uh, at this point uh, the american empire is so full of its own hubris and it's taking itself apart well, yeah it'll, itself. Uh, it'll, it's its own worst enemy basically you know that kind of stuff's going to happen <clears throat> increasingly as it, it continues to defy reality and, and push push again push against it and try and uh, create their own reality continue, and then reality will intercede and uh, and things will, will go wrong uh, much more quickly and much more often. Um, yeah, so was there anything else? Um, well, there was another water story we, my, we wanted to cover. Water? Yeah.
0: Well, the, the, the Houston Husby. event.
2: Yeah. Oh, Houston. Just a hurricane.
3: Yeah.
2: Hurricane, <laughs> a lot of water fell, people's houses got flooded. Done.
3: Yeah, alligators moved in.
0: That was the worst flood ever. Ever? For Texas.
2: For, Texas. Well, yeah. Houston's prone to flooding, though.
1: Yeah, but not it was like pretty this. bad,
2: but Houston was going to get it. Well, they had record flooding. They had pretty serious flooding like the last two years in a row. Particularly in 2015, there was a series of storms came in and dumped a massive amount of water and Houston got seriously flooded. But yeah, this was bigger because it was uh, yes, uh But I mean, time. if anyone anywhere in that area, you notice that they're only focusing on Houston. Houston's like it's not okay. It's what it's maybe a couple hours inland. Uh, but mm-hmm. you, you didn't see much about the, the much. There's not much talk about the any of the towns, I mean, decent sized towns, on the coast or closer to the coast that, that Harvey kind of barreled over. You know, yeah, it's all Latin. focused on Houston. Why? Because Houston Houston is Houston is pr- very prone to. The flooding—it's a kind of like there's a couple of different reasons. One of them was a soil type of soil in the area, and just the kind of where it's situated, um, the way it's laid out, and stuff. It's just a—it's a catchment area, basically. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, there's 50 dead and rising. Right. Um, but that doesn't compare to what's going on in South Asia. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure that's record flooding too. But then it's hard to tell in a place that's going through, again, it's flood-prone, right? It's monsoon season. Right. However, death toll of 1,400 and
2: rising. Yeah. Um,
1: millions displaced.
2: Yeah. Millions. Right, you know. um, and, that's, and that's just from rain, mostly. Yeah. I mean, it's monsoon, but it's it's unprecedented or, you know, uh, a pretty serious monsoon season. I mean, there's th- a place, that, like you said, gets a monsoon every year, but why uh, is it so bad? Well, I mean, the weather's gone. Uh, weather's gone pretty crazy everywhere. Cuckoo, yeah, gone, gone, cuckoo. cuckoo, pretty pretty much everywhere around the world. So nobody should be surprised. I mean, if you're paying attention, I mean, there's wildfires, the worst wildfires ever in LA right yeah. now. Yeah, you know? again, they get wildfires every year, but but these are the worst ever, you yeah. know. Um, and you have crazy weather all over all over Europe, uh, particularly inland and in. in in Europe, uh, Turkey, and... Um, oh, and Turkey, yeah, Istanbul. Getting dumped with, like, get repeatedly hit with uh, with serious hailstorms and flooding as in well. In summer And not just them, but, like, plenty of other places as well. Italy Italy seems to be really getting, gets it bad, you know, for whatever reason. Maybe it's surrounded by, you know, two seas there mostly, you know.
0: Uh, in both winter and
2: summer. Yeah, uh, but it's really, there's a real upswing in, in crazy weather hitting pretty much everywhere on the planet, you know. Um, Global warming. And then we have, it's global warming, Damn those, that, what, who are these men that make it? Trump. Is it Trump?
3: It's yeah. m- It's man made global warming. It's the patriarchy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, Al the patriarchy.
0: Lord, don't it. blame the Republicans. It's, it's <laughs> Democrats. It's not
2: It's white privileged oh, that's true. men. It's a white privilege is a source of the global warming. Mm-hmm. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually go there, but um, probably have already. Um, yeah, I like weather too. Highland Fleet, good. Um, it's pretty good. There's another uh, storm coming. Um, Irma. Irma. Very. Uh, not very. Uh, not very offensive name, but doesn't sound very dangerous, but could be quite dangerous. You I looked it up. It
0: means world in old high German. World.
2: World. So there's a world hurricane.
0: It's a world hurricane.
2: A world hurricane is is. Chugging across the Atlantic uh, right now. Don't know where it'll go necessarily. People Make a predict- prediction. Make a prediction. Latest predictions are is that it's going up up the coast, kind of like Sandy, Hurricane mm-hmm. Sandy. Uh, who knows what shape it'll be in by that stage? It might hit the Carolinas, um, where you guys are, uh, but you're mm-hmm. well inland. So uh, mm-hmm. coastal stuff. But there's also the tantalising promise, potential, mm-hmm. given the timescale, that it could end up in New York, on September 11th. Anybody? 9-11. Ooh. Oh. 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9/11. Um, 9-11, 2017,
0: 16 years. My God.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, crazy weather. Just keep an eye on the crazy weather, people, and mm-hmm. take note of it because it is absolutely crazy. And not just weather, but fires, volcanoes, Uh, quite a few uh, lightning strikes happening very close to people uh which i think would just suggest there's more lightning strikes uh uh, because obviously if you increase the number of lightning strikes eventually you're going to start hitting more populated areas whereas now most of the lightning strikes tend to be kind of uh I don't know why, but they tend to not be right beside people. Historically, lightning strikes tend to not like, hit your backyard or hit the tree in your backyard. You know, you see them over in the distance far away and you think, I wonder if that's hitting somebody's backyard. But over there, it's not hitting anybody's <laughs> backyard, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, so, But there's been, I've been watching them like over the past few weeks. And it's like there was one um, in, where was it, Quebec? You should look it up on the web. And in, uh, somewhere in Quebec, in Canada this guy's at a at a lodge you know a a group of house uh, kind of lodges and uh, it just comes there they're filming outside and just massive you know the sound of it massive crack and it hits this giant big pine tree you know and just cuts it in half whole top half it just falls over like crazy you know i mean literally like it explodes it explode it exploded the tree basically yeah Mm -hmm. um so that's pretty crazy and uh all those things, are should keep an eye on them because they're entertaining in a certain sense. <laughs> um, explosions and stuff. <laughs> nature, <laughs> nature nature, doing explosions.
3: All right. Well, uh, did we have any other stories we wanted to cover today? I think that's it. Um,
2: yeah, pretty much. All the right. Myanmar thing, the Burma-Myanmar oh. thing, is just, uh, you know, it's hard to tell. It's like a bunch of... Rebels in in Myanmar
1: who um, want I, they want, they want
2: independence and their leader was born in Saudi Arabia. And they claim they're not getting any help. They're, they're Muslims. They claim they're not getting any help from outside. Um, but they're fighting against the uh, Myanmar uh, Buddhist. You know, most people in Myanmar are Buddhists, and uh, the government is. And supposedly they're being persecuted. Um, it's probably a lot more complicated than that. They they want independence. They're basically having a guerrilla war against the Myanmar military. They're Muslims. One, of their leader was born in Saudi Arabia. Um, you know they're being supported, at least tacitly, or you know uh, uh, they're being given moral support from Saudi Arabia and even from, to some extent, ISIS. I think have ISIS as, uh, th- or what is left of them have uh, have talked about. Their struggle and stuff. So this could be something too, because obviously Myanmar is on, is on, it's on China. It has, has a border with China. And, um, it could be a kind of a transplanting of a, of a kind of serious situation or the beginning of the, at an attempt to transplant a serious situation over to the border with, um, China. Although China is a lot bigger country than Syria, you'd have to do a lot more there to trouble China, but who knows? It's hard to tell at this point. We not
0: see. I I, th- I think there's. I, I've read that um, this this latest eruption of violence it began in 2012 in a big way. Yeah. Um, that was when. Uh... And it's flared up every now and then. And this latest one began when police stations were attacked
2: right.
0: by well armed. Mm-hmm. So th- this isn't well armed refugees we're talking about here. And then the Buddhist Myanmar population the indigenous one, if you like, reacted. Um, additionally, I've read or come across, theres too long to read, but there are people paying attention to the situation who have written extensive reports saying that, while yes, there are atrocities being committed against the Muslim population,
2: mm-hmm.
0: they're completely air, airbrushed from Western NGOs and the Western mainstream narrative mm-hmm. are equivalent atrocities being committed against the Buddhist majority population. Well, then, who are now a man- minority in this state yeah. of Rakhine. Uh, so,
2: well, but it's, yeah, but it's not, it's only, it's part of, it's just, it's not necessarily a state, it's it's under the, the, the government control, you know, it's it's part of the same country, you know.
0: Oh, yeah, but it's not even by a state, it's uh, like a province. You're it's, saying they've
2: been attacked, the locals are, Buddhist locals, uh, the Burmese, have, they've being, now become a minority
0: and they're being attacked by one-armed yeah. groups.
2: Yeah, possibly, yeah. So it's hard to tell, but... Um, and, of course, you've got Bangladesh right next door and India right next door. Uh, Bangladesh being predominantly Muslim, India being predominantly. But then the Bangladeshi government was actually supportive of the Myanmar government in fighting against these rebels. So it doesn't seem like it's coming from there. It, but there is a Saudi link, you know. So um, and when you see, when you hear Saudi and jihadi, Muslim, you got to be concerned, you know. Anyway. All right, that's about it.
3: Okay, well, thank you everyone for tuning in. Thanks, of course, to Robert Fantina for joining us on the show today. Again, his new book is Essays on Palestine, available on Amazon, redpillpress.com. And uh, thank you to Ilan, Joe, and Neil. Thank you, Harrison. Oh, thank
0: Thank you, Harrison. Thank you,
3: Harrison. Good show, guys. (sighs) All right. Well, everyone, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.
1: Bye, See everyone. you next week. See ya.
2: Bye bye. Good evening.